Okay. This is my wife's picture, so I'm, I'm using that tonight. She put that on the website so that you guys... Some of you looked that week, last, last week when I started this, this series, some of you looked like that right there. <laughs> some of us may be not comfortable with this, that God is not in control. We like, the, we like the thought that God is in control of everything. It must be His will or He wouldn't have allowed it to happen. We can adopt the world's view, which is very similar to that, says fate or luck or karma. That's what brought us together. But I take it personal for God's reputation when He is blamed for the devil's work, evil men's work, or stupid mistakes, and somehow we say that God is in control, or if it happens, it must be His will. Tons of things happen each day that are not willed by God, but are willed by man. Evil men and women willed to do these things. Or because the devil willed it. It is His will to steal, kill, and destroy. I know it sounds much more spiritual to say, well, God's got it all under control. I want you to think for a moment about Joplin, Missouri, the Bible Belt. People have said that maybe that was God's judgment upon America. But I can think of a lot of better places for God's judgment to come down on than Joplin, Missouri. I'll tell you that. That I can see Washington, D.C., Las Vegas. You know what? If it happened in those two places, I might be inclined to say, okay, yeah, that is God's judgment. But not in a place where godly men and women lived and godly men and women died and lost their homes. Luke 13 says that now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. I'll never forget a story that Heidi Baker talks about. And she says that she's at a pastor's conference in one of the poorest nations of the country. And she's there with pastors. And she asks them, the, 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 she asks the pastors, he says, How many of you have had a member of your immediate family die as a, as a result of malnutrition or starvation? Almost all these pastors raised their hands. Did they have enough faith? I will tell you this, it's the evil of this world. Believers have been tortured horribly, endured hardship, beatings and death. Was it lack of faith? Was it lack of prayer? So much of the American church, God wants you to be happy. God wants to, He won't let bad things happen to you. He wants you to prosper. God wants you to make the head and not the tail. He wants, we want to spout these things off as though they just come off the cuff. But the church has been suffering for 2,000 years. Men and women and children have lost heart because of, of what's happened in their lives. And was it lack of faith? Was, it, was this God's will for their life? I will answer to you no. When I tell you the story of Perpetua, I told this story uh, probably over a year ago. And I want to just read this story to you very quickly. Perpetua. 
2003 AD, 22 years old. We have little idea what brought about Perpetua's faith in Christ or how long she had been a Christian or how she lived her Christian life. Thanks to her diary and that of another prisoner, we have some idea of her last days. An ordeal that so impressed the famous Augustine that he preached four sermons about her death. Perpetua was a Christian noblewoman who at the turn of the 3rd century lived with her husband, her son, and her slave Felicitas in Carthage. At this time, North Africa was the center of a vibrant Christian community. It was no surprise then that the emperor determined that the Christ- he wanted to cripple Christianity. He focused his attention on North Africa. Among the first to be arrested were these five new converts, taking a class to prepare them for baptism one of which was Perpetua. Her family immediately came to her in prison. They were pagan. They came to her there and they said, Please, Perpetua, save yourself. Please, just deny Christ. Deny that you're a Christian. Her dad pleaded with her. And she said, Father, do you see this vase? Could it be called by any other name than what it is? No, he replied. Well, then neither can I be called by any other name than what I am, a Christian. In the next days, Perpetua was moved to a better part of the prison to allow her to breastfeed her child, 22 years old. With her hearing, with, with her hearing approaching, her father came and visited again, pleaded with her passionately, have pity on this gray-haired father. If, you'd, if I deserve to be called your father, if I have found favor with you and your brothers, if I have raised you in the right time of the prime of your life, please deny this. The judge ruled and condemned Perpetua and her, fa- her friends to die in the arena. Perpetua and her friend and her slave, Felicitas, who had subsequently been arrested, were dressed in tunics. When they entered the stadium, wild beasts and gladiators roamed the arena floor, and in the stands, crowds roared to see the blood. They didn't have long to wait. Immediately, a wild heifer charged the group. Perpetua was tossed into the air and onto her back. She sat up, adjusted her tunic, and walked over to help her, 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 her slave girl, Felicitas. Then a leopard was let loose, and it wasn't long before the tunics of the Christians were stained with blood. This was too deliberate for the impatient crowd who began calling for the death of the Christians. So Perpetua and her slave and her friends were lined up one by one and slain by the sword. God's will? Many have died as a result of being a Christian, of just saying that name. We go through this life in America and we spout it as though it's nothing. But it costs men and women lives. We don't like the fact that we say God's not in control. We don't like the randomness of what happens in our lives. It's okay if it doesn't strike us. I've had a very blessed life. Not because I'm any better than anyone else. Not because I've obeyed any better than anybody else. Though obedience does bring blessing, but it also brings persecution. It guarantees hatred. It guarantees attacks. It guarantees trials and tribulations. That's what Jesus said. Ezekiel, 
I used this, I used this scripture a couple weeks ago when I talked about Ezekiel, and he was, by, he was, he was taken to Babylon, and there he sat with, with the exiles by the river. And I didn't tell you this part, but in, in chapter 24, he's 34 years old. And God tells him, your wife is about to die. God's will? Top it off. God tells Ezekiel, I don't want you to mourn. I don't want you to cry. I don't want you to do any open emotion. I don't want you to have any open emotion for what's going on with your wife. Being blessed or successful or having prosperity isn't God's stamp of approval on your life. Don't think because you're blessed, because America has been blessed. Don't think because you're blessed that is God's approval. That you can walk the way you want to walk and you can do the things you want to do. God has allowed this country, and I don't know for how much longer... But I will tell you this, don't think in your life that you say to yourself, just because I'm blessed, that's God's stamp of approval on my life. I'm doing okay, because it's not. I told you last week that God is omniscient. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is sovereign. But when you say God is not in control, you're taking away something from Him. Not everything that comes at us, though, is from God. Our battle is with the enemy of this world. If God is in control, why would He tell us to pray against it? Think about that for a moment. That would be like a double-minded man. Pray against something that God has sent to you. This is God's will. Now go pray against it. Who's in control of your destiny? You are. I decide whether I want to be saved or not. I choose Him or I deny Him. I am the master of my destiny in the sense of what I choose in my life. Once I'm saved, I decide to live for God or I decide to be lukewarm. God does not look up from heaven. He goes, okay, um, Greg, you're going to be lukewarm. And Scott or uh, Ron, you're going to be uh, sold out to God. We make that choice. If God is in control of the church... Who's behind all the lukewarmness? Who's behind all the powerlessness? The ordaining of homosexuals? The prayerlessness? Is it sin? Or is God in control of all those things? There's two kingdoms at work. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. God is being blamed for things that should rightly be blamed on the devil. I believe that with the phrase, God is in control, God has been blamed for countless things the devil did. For countless things that sin caused. For countless things that the earth's groaning produced. In Romans it talks about that. And for the countless things that God weeps over and they're not His will. Tonight I would, I'm going to read from a book. And I, last week I, I gave you guys a, a couple... I talked talk to you about what Pastor Mike had said about this. I've talked to you about what, what uh, Bill Johnson has said. And tonight I'm going to read from, from Dutch Sheets' book, Intercessory Prayer. And I'm going to read this to you because I just feel like it's so important. So I normally don't read this much, but I want you to follow along with me. And I've got it up here. Many Christians believe that protection from accidents, destruction, and Satan's traps and assaults is automatic for the Christian. That we do nothing to cause it. 
that is based on the sovereignty of God alone. In other words, when God wants to protect us from these things, he does. When he chooses not to, he allows them to happen. This belief simply means that whether or not we are delivered from destructive things is based entirely on God, not on us. Those who adhere to this teaching usually believe nothing can happen to a Christian that is not allowed by God. Others go as far to say that it is true for everyone, not just Christians. They believe that God is in control of everything that happens on earth. That God is, is not directly in control of... Okay, I'm going to be back up here. That God is not in directly control of everything that takes place on the earth can be seen in these simple facts. He would never decide a person should be raped or abused. He would never desire that innocent would suffer. He would never will that murder, pillage, racial genocide, or thousands of other things of evil that would happen. Whether or not God directly controls every event in the life of the Christian can be answered by stating that the basic laws of sowing and reaping, cause and effect, individual responsibility, and the free will aren't negated when we come to Christ. All promises from God are attached to conditions, governing principles. What did I say last week? 1,270 ifs in the Bible. Most of, if not all, of these conditions involve responsibility on our part, our part. Protection is no exception. Most of us don't like that. It threatens us somehow and weakens God in our minds to imply He's not in control of everything. And the majority is greatly offended if anything is taught implying that a failure to receive protection, provision, healing, and answer to prayer or anything else from God could be our fault. I can understand how this might threaten us. I'm threatened by myself, by me, by me. But I don't understand why it offends. Are any of, you, any of us claiming perfection? Aren't all of us going to fail once in a while? Then why are we offended when a teaching suggests that these imperfections and failure might hinder us? Why are we offended and opposed to a teaching that says our unbelief kept us from receiving something when so often the Bible says, if we believe and we do not doubt and waver, we will receive? Why are we offended when it is implied that our inability to persevere created lack when the Bible says that though, th- though through faith and patience we inherit the promises? Why are we confused or angry when, we, when it is suggested that not, only, not, being something, not, not doing something caused failure when the Bible says if we were willing and obedient, we will eat the good of the land? This one, I, this one's interesting. As many as 80% of those who consider themselves born again don't tithe, thereby opening themselves up to a curse. Yet they are offended when someone implies that their lack of provision might be their own fault. Hmm. We don't forgive and still we have the gall to think God will hear and answer our prayers. Remember, I didn't write this. Often... We eat poorly, we don't exercise, we abuse our bodies in other ways, then we blame sickness on God's will. We don't properly train our children, yet we're offended with the suggestion that the rebellion might be our own fault. We don't abide in Christ and His Word, still we blame it on God's will, and we ask what we will, and it doesn't get done. We know faith comes through hearing and meditation on God's Word, and most of us do very little of that. But let someone imply that we don't receive a promise because of unbelief, and we're irate. The Scriptures teach that he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High receives the protective promises of the remainder of the Psalms 91. That I have, that I have an armor and I must wear and carry. Include the shield of faith toward the, to ward off 
uh, Satan's fiery darts, and that Satan goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he, he may devour, and then I am to resist him. And yet, let someone suggest that my lack of protection from some destructive happening could be my fault, and I'm offended. How about you? I'm not certainly implying that God will never allow us to walk through difficulties, though that that all our problems are because of disobedience and that all of our unanswered prayers is because of unbelief. I'm simply saying that many of our failures and difficulties are our fault, not God's will. We have a part to play in securing the protection and other heavenly provisions. Let's try to lay down our fears, insecurities, and tendencies toward offense. Let's accept the fact that the Scriptures are filled with principles that put responsibility on us, which must be met to receive God's promises. Let's realize that this doesn't cancel grace and promote salvation by works. Grace does not imply no responsibility on our part. Let's realize that the love of God is unconditional, but His favor and blessings are not. Let's cast off laziness, complacency, apathy. Let's realize that we fall short at times and not to feel condemned when we do. If you're still willing to finish this book after you've heard such a dissertation about protection... You've probably guessed by now that I don't believe it is automatically ours just because we're Christians. We must do our part to secure it, one of which is building boundaries to protection through prayer. I said it last week. I said that we need to be yielded to the Holy Spirit. A yielded life in the Holy Spirit will put us on His path. The steps of a righteous man are ordered of the Lord. That does not mean that He is in total control. No. Yet Christ displayed that yielded life. If we are yielded to the Holy Spirit, we are under His protection. We are submitted to His will. Does that mean that, that, that the harm won't come to us? It may, just like Perpetua. This was a woman who was 22 years old who would given her life to the Lord, was about to be baptized, and her life was ended because of, of, of evil of this world. Scott, come up here just for a second. Scott was telling me this week, and I want you to tell me that, that part about Jesus. How you felt like Jesus would bounce back and, and what that... Tell them, right. tell them about that. I was, just, I was just questioning this last couple weeks about uh, Jesus' submission uh, to God, to His perfect will. And, and the questions I had were, okay, he's, God, is He 100%... Is Jesus 100% man totally submitted to God's will, walking perfectly in God's will as an example for us, or was he, Jesus, a man, bouncing back and forth between manhood and godhood? Was he, well, no wonder God, Jesus could walk like that, because he was bouncing back and forth, but no. It, it, what came to me is, it, and from talking to people, it's like, Jesus was a man in perfect submission to God's will, walking under God's authority, carrying out God's will perfectly as an example for us. And, and, uh, and my, answer, my question was answered and, and peace through that. Yeah, That's it. Jesus didn't just go, okay, today I'm going to be God and I'll be able to submit and do all these things. He had to yield Himself to the Holy Spirit. I said it last week. I said, do you want a road map or do you want a tour guide? The Holy Spirit in John 16, 13 says that when He, the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what he, has, what he hears. And He will tell you what is to come. Some people have difficulty with this. 
Because they think, oh my goodness, if you're gonna if you're gonna follow after the Holy Spirit, you can get kind of spooky spiritual there. You know what though? We have a roadmap. We have a roadmap. We can always go back to the roadmap when we're in doubt. But the Holy Spirit will lead us and He will guide us into all truth. He will convict us, the Bible says. He will comfort us. He's there for us. I'm not talking about just having faith. I'm talking about a lifestyle of faith. Not having faith for a family crisis, but I'm talking about a lifestyle of prayer. I'm talking about a lifestyle of fasting that becomes not just for a miracle, but it becomes part of your life. A divine awareness where everything you do becomes aware of the presence of God around you. And that you're not, you know what, the path that you're on is no longer yours, but it's the path set before you because you fully submitted yourself to Christ. A lifestyle of faith accesses a realm beyond the physical, beyond this world. We have access to the supernatural. We can bring heaven to earth. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Everything operates under God's will and under His control in heaven. So when we access that realm in prayer, we become obedient to that lifestyle. When we bring heaven down to earth, then we can walk in that will of God. Then we can walk in that perfect will of God. Prayer is the avenue that, you, that God uses to bring us to the kingdom kingdom of heaven to the, to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth he comes at our invitation as we invite him into the situation and walk in complete surrender to the holy spirit we give him the ability to act on our behalf what's happened to uh to jonathan and his armor bearer the bible says that you know what they submitted themselves to god and they said perhaps god will act on our behalf that's what happens when we step out there in faith we surrender ourselves to god god uses those avenues he's looking for those places he's looking for those people who will submit themselves to him and say what do you want me to do here and they're walking in that place with god abiding faith that everything that god does he can reverse the effects of the evil of this world. He can take a family crisis and turn it into his good. What takes more power? Just think about this just for a minute. What takes more power? For God to make us all robots and make us do everything he wants us to do? Or would it be more powerful for the omnipotent God to work in the midst of the evil that's going on in this realm and that the wills of people are against him and in the midst of that he says, I'm omnipotent. I'm able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all you ask or even imagine. That I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. That he can work all things together for my good. That's the God that we serve. He can take those kinds of situations, not robots, but the evil that's going on in this world and turn it around for us. God orchestrates everything in the midst of the evil that's going on in this world. The bad things that happen, the earth's groaning. He can use all these things for His glory. Peter was rescued from prison, yet James was killed. Paul and Silas were rescued from jail. Yet John the Baptist was beheaded. Jesus told the disciples there, he said, don't be offended because of me. Because they were about to see John the Baptist, who who they were disciples of, die. And he said, don't be offended because of me. Because I'm not going to do what you think I'm going to do right here. Or what I, what I came, you thought I came to do. They all thought he came to be the savior of the, and, and, and overthrow the Roman Empire and give them relief from this, this oppression that was in their life. God uses our prayer life. 
Sometimes we see things that don't seem to make sense. But I'm trying tonight to tear down something and build something in its place. Tear down a falsehood that we've thought maybe from the past and build something on truth. Why does it seem that so many prayers go unanswered? It's hard to stay stirred to pray when we see so many prayers go unanswered. How do I have faith? which is very important, when I have so many defeats, and if we haven't had defeats in our life, you haven't been praying much. (laughs) Destroying is the work of the devil. Saving, redeeming, healing, and restoring is the work of God. God is stirring us to abiding faith. Not praying for our family emergencies, but a lifestyle of faith. A lifestyle of prayer. Prayer without ceasing, the Bible says. Persistence in our prayer is the act of obedience. God does not forget. He doesn't need us to remind Him and keep saying it over and over. But you know why He wants us to? Because we begin to floodgate. We open the floodgates of heaven over the enemy and it begins to bombard the enemy and all of a sudden we can see the answer come. Does it? Does this how... God's trying to show us a principle of the kingdom of God. Just like the parables. I will tell you, there's a, Jesus told this parable, and I'll just tell one of them real quickly. He said that the persistence of our prayer is just like this. He says, a man will go over to his neighbor's house, and he says, listen, I've got some, some friends coming over to stay. And I need you to open up your door and give me some bread. Now, you've got to realize, in those days, everybody slept in the house. The goats, the sheep, everything was in the house. Every piece of, uh, all the kids, all the animals, uh, generations were in this house. You go and knock on somebody's door at midnight and ask them for something, you're waking the whole household up. So you know what? The guy who's at the, uh, inside the house, he doesn't want to answer the door. You keep knocking. He says, I don't want to get up. Because you don't understand, I've got to step over to the billy goat. I've got to step over Junior. I've got to walk all over, and I've got to wake the whole family up to get you this bread. But the Bible says that even though he's evil, that even though he's evil, because of the man's persistence, he will get up and answer. How much more will our Father in Heaven answer when we continue in persistence? But you know what happens so many times? We go to God, we pray one time, and then we turn around and we go back and we go, well, that was good. And God's saying, you know what? No, I want you to keep going. I need you to keep knocking. Not because I need reminding. Not because I have forgotten what you said yesterday. But it's just like Cornelius. The Bible says that your prayer, the prayers of Cornelius came up. His gifts and his offerings and his prayer came up to God as a memorial. They were a reminder of God. You know what you're about to do? I'm about to pour out that bowl that my wife said a couple weeks ago. She says, I see that bowl of the prayers of, of the saints that is about to tip over and they're about to be answered. I will tell you, as we keep filling that bowl up, it has no choice. We keep praying. We keep seeking God. We keep pressing into God. That bowl has got to fill up, and it's going to fall over. Prayer is hindered by two things, three things. The will of men. God does not violate the wills of men. By the enemy's assaults and by sin. Sometimes it seems our prayers go unanswered. But remember the prayers of Daniel. For 21 days, it seemed as though there was no answer. But then God came and he showed up and he said, Daniel, I have heard your prayer. And I have been battling with the prince of Persia. But I'm about to do what you said it was going to happen. I heard you that very first day. But I will tell you this. Our onslaught against the enemy. Our onslaught against the enemy over Sequoia Dawn. Our onslaught against the enemy over Springville. Our onslaught over this region. has got to be a continual 
powerful prayer where we offer these things up. We continue to bombard the enemy where the enemy finally says, you know what? I heard you the first time and you kind of upset me, but I'm right back here. And then you know what? We bombard him a second time. He says, you know what? I'm getting kind of irritated now. And then you know what he says? When we keep bombarding, he finally he gets repelled back. And he says, it's just like over in Iraq. You know, we did that shock and awe thing. Remember that? When we first came in there in the early 90s, we shock and awed him. And we thought, okay, now we're done. It wasn't done because the insurgents began to come out of the woodwork. And that's how the enemy works. You know what? Sometimes we try to shock and awe him because, ooh, I'm a godly man. I can do all these things. But then the Bible says, just like that, the enemy will come up. He'll rise up. We've got to come against the enemy. We've got to continue to come against the enemy. We've got to, they're going to come out of the woodwork. That's okay. We repel the enemy by our praise, by our worship, by our praying. By our prayers, we cancel the assignments of the enemy. Our prayers clobber the enemy. They break down the walls of the enemy. Our prayer, our praise bombards the enemy to move him back. They aren't threatened by a one-time initial assault, not even by a second attack. However, when they see a steadfast, persistent, determined prayer sanctified by a people of God, they move back. They, they try to hang around because they have something to hang on to, but they think that we're an easy target. They'll go look for somebody else. Tearing down those strongholds is like that shock and all that broke down the strong points, but we've got to come against the enemy and continue to come against the enemy, not submitting to, to our own flesh and saying, I'm done here. We've got to keep going. Someone not too long ago said to me, they were, they were fasting, and I can't remember who it was, but they said to me, they said, you know, I was fasting and I just didn't feel it. You will never feel fasting. Fasting is miserable, okay? Praying sometimes is miserable. You know, this week I said to myself, I said, you know what? For 15 minutes, I, I usually, I, I pray for a long time, but I said, for 15 minutes I'm going to do nothing but just praise the Lord. Now, I'm not, gonna pr- I'm not even going to thank the Lord because I, that comes back to me. I want to do something that just blesses Him. And for 15 minutes, I tried, and I was, I was wrestling through it, and I was praying through it, and I kept trying to think of things. God, I honor you. I praise you. Your glory in the lift. I bless you. I magnify you. You're exalted. You're the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You're the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And I continue to praise, and I continue to praise, and then I would take a breath, and I would think to myself, how much easier is it for me to go sit in front of that TV and be entertained? for hours, but I can't spend 15 minutes praising my Lord and Savior. It disgusted me. Ezekiel 3, 8, 9 says, but I will make you unyielding and hardened. I I will make your forehead like the hardest stone, harder than flint. Do not be afraid of them. Do not be terrified, though they are rebellious people. The word that says there, I will make you harden, is the word, you know what I'm talking about, kazak. Yes, just like be strong and courageous. He's telling them here, Ezekiel, I want you to make your forehead strong, just like that strong and courageous, what I told Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Build up that hardness. That you know what? You will not be, you will be like flint. You will not be able to be turned to the left or the right. You put your face towards the wind and you say, you know what? I am not going to do nothing. I'm going to continue to pray. I'm going to persist in the Lord. I will not be terrified by what comes at me, but I'm going to make my, myself focused on you, Kazak. 
Prayer that threatens the enemy. Consistent prayer that disperses the enemy. It rattles the hell, hell's gates. It frightens the enemy. It, it, it shackles the kings. It backs up principalities. I'm talking about a prayer that reaches up and touches heaven. It calls heaven to earth. Not a bless me cub that will come, that will make it better for me or make me happier or wealthier. I'm talking about a Calvary cleansed, blood bought, Christian, sanctified, set apart for Jesus Christ who's grabbed a hold of heaven and won't get go. He doesn't let the enemy come along. He's persistent in his prayer, in his praise life. Ephesians says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, authorities, and forces. I will come against him. I will strike back the enemy with the high praises of God on my mouth. Uh, the high praises of God on my mouth. I will praise him. I will worship him. I will, I, will, I will set back the enemy, the Bible says, with the high praises of God in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. They will inflict vengeance on the nations, punishment on the peoples. They will bind up the kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, and they will carry out the sentence written against them. Do you want to talk to me about how God is in control? He's called me to pray. He's called me to pray against it. He's told me to come against the enemy. He's told me to take authority over over these demons. He's told me to say, you know what? We are no longer what we've been before. We're no longer going to sit back and be settled, but we're going to rise up like men and women of God and be the people we're supposed to be. Just like Ezekiel with Kazakh in our heart and our head forehead as strong as the against the enemy says, I will be strong like a diamond. I will be strong like the and come against the enemy. Is God in control? The biblical view says this. I must fast. I must pray. I must battle. I must bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. Amen. Ooh, sorry about that. <laughs> Guys, the reason why I feel like this is so important for us is because we've sat back. I've done it. You know, I've seen people come along and something's going on. And I go, you know what? Don't worry. God's in control. But the biblical view is not that God's in control. The biblical view is that we have to rise up as men and women of God and begin to pray. Amen. You know what? Husbands, men of your family, you need to pray over your family. You need to be, be, be building boundaries around your family. You need to be praying that the enemy will have no foothold in your family. You need to pray over your home. You need to pray over your kids. You need to be build, building boundaries. If you're not doing it every day, you're allowing the enemy to come in. And then we wonder sometimes, well, how did this happen? How did these things happen to me? Because we weren't doing those things. I feel guilty because I think to myself, in my life, I see my boys, they're not exactly where I want them to be. They're, they're not serving the Lord like they're supposed to. And you know who's to blame for that? I believe that I take a big responsibility in that. Because I didn't do what I was supposed to do. I should have been praying. I should have been covering them in prayer. I should have been building those boundaries, not leaving it up to luck or some karma or some other foolishness of this world. I should be battling the enemy and taking on all authority that he has given me. Wives, you need to be praying over that husband that he'll be kept clean. He'll be kept pure. You should be bringing a ring around him, pleading the blood of Jesus over his life, not letting any harm come to him. As your parents get older, you need to be praying over there, them and saying, you know what? I bind and rebuke the enemy. I want to keep them in good health. I pray, Lord, that you would keep them in prosperity. Be giving like I'm supposed to. Be tithing like I'm supposed to. Doing all these things that the word says. But not if we're not doing those things, well, we should expect the opposite. 
And so many times, just like that book says, I, when I read that, I thought, oh my goodness, that's exactly how we operate. We don't tithe, and when we underway, we don't prosper. We don't pray over our families, and we wonder how they've been ravaged apart. We wonder how our cities have gotten to the place they've been. How Sequoia Dawn got to this place like it is today. It didn't happen overnight. The enemy found a foothold. And he said, I'm going to take a hold of that. He looks for the easy prey. We've got to pray. That's the, that God's calling us to that. Prayer is not some wish list. But it's getting a hold of God with power, authority, the righteousness of God. The prayers of a righteous man availeth much, the Bible says. Taking authority over the enemy. Not once, but daily. Guys, I'll tell you what. This is, we're still up against a fight. I'm going to tell you right now. The evil one of this world, he's trying to control, he's trying to manipulate. But we've got to stand up as men and women of God. You may not feel like a man or woman of God, but remember the Bible says in Ezekiel, he, took, he says, prophesy to these dry bones, and they'll come alive. Bone to bone. Ligament to ligament, muscle to muscle. God's raising up an army. He's not raising up a church. He's not raising up a denomination. We've got people all over from here in this, in this, in this building, and, and I love that. And, then, and you know, I know that when people come out on Tuesday night, you've got to be hungry. You're not looking for just ordinary church. You're looking for something. You're looking for something more from God. And then God's calling us all to take that rightful place. But when we don't do these things... We should expect what's going to happen to us. The random acts of, this, of, of, of the, the world are going to come upon us. But God's calling us to something greater. He's calling us to, to pray, to intercede, to take authority. You want to get the kids? I'm not going to close tonight with... A, an altar service because I, I feel like we, we had that at the beginning and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna ask you tonight is as we close tonight in this in this we're gonna sing one worship song but I want you just to think about what God is calling us to take this you know we have to we have to even go outside of ourselves guys this doesn't mean you know it's easy to pray for our family someone we love now I'm asking you to pray for those who we don't love I'm asking you to pray for those that are unlovable I'm asking you to you know when I like I said I go down to to Walmart sometimes and I get sick of going in there and I think of yeah this is I just hate going in there sometimes you guys know what I'm talking about and I and I look at those people and I say you know what God bless them these are people you're going to pour out your you're going to pour out on them pour out your blessing upon them let the spirit of God come upon them God's about to do that. 
But it's going to happen through our obedience, through our worship, through our praise. Don't, don't stop. I, I, I've seen a picture this week and I was sharing it with, I think it was Ron. Ron came by the house and I said, I see this picture in my prayer time. I see us bombarding the enemy. You know, you know, you imagine a, a big wall and, and when they, when they went to attack it, they would, they would throw and they would lob over grenades and they would lob over all these things. And that's what they, the, the, we're supposed to do. We're lobbing over our prayers. We're lobbing over our praise. And you know what? The enemy gets repelled back. It doesn't happen overnight. You know, you say to yourself, well, my prayer wasn't answered. Well, then keep praying. Keep praying. Keep fasting. Keep coming against the enemy. Keep lobbing those things, and the enemy will be repelled. I will tell you right now, we've already seen a change in the atmosphere over Sequoia Dawn, but I want to see it even better than that. You know, we call it the campus, but I want, to, I want to see every one of you guys here that live in here, I want you to go, you know, I'm proud of it. I'm proud of it. You know, you'll walk up and down these streets and say, I, I live at Sequoia Dawn, and it's not something I'm ashamed of, but it's something I'm proud of. And you know what? That's what God's calling us to. But we got to begin to do the things that God's calling us to do. Living that life like we're supposed to. Amen.